Hey everyone, you're listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a podcast in which philosophers, theologians, and literary critics discuss how literature can help us think more deeply about love, happiness, and meaning in human life. I am your host, Jennifer Frey. I am an associate professor of philosophy at the University of South Carolina. You can follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter at Jen Frey, and I'm also on Instagram at Professoressa Frey. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter at Pod. In this episode, I speak with the writer Nick Repatrazone about the poetry of Gerard Manley Hopkins. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Sacred and Profane Love. I'm really happy to be joined this morning by Nick Repatrazone, who is the culture editor for Image Journal and also a contributing editor at The Millions and a columnist for Literary Hub. He's also the author of Longing for an Absent God and a new book, which is called Wild Belief, Poets and Prophets in the Wilderness. Welcome to the podcast, Nick. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. Yeah, well, I'm I'm really excited because we're going to be doing another episode on poetry, which is really fantastic. But I'm also just excited about your book, which I just recently read, and I really loved it. It's really intriguing. Before we get into your book, I want to kind of start with you because I only internet know you. <laughs> and so when you internet know somebody, you're just like making a bunch of inferences about them, some good, some bad. But you're a writer, obviously, and an editor, but you also teach, is it high school? Yeah, I have been a high school English teacher for, I'll start my 18th year in the fall. Um, I had taught college uh, at the same time for my first, I guess, 10 or 11 years. So um, I was an adjunct at uh, the College of New Jersey and at Rutgers. Okay. But yeah, my, my full-time job is a, is a high school English teacher. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, is it <clears> – <throat> I mean, I don't mean, you know, to be dense or something or to make assumptions, but I just assume that someone who – is a professional writer and a high school English teacher that that's not common or is that super common? Uh, I haven't experienced it being uh, usually when people in my kind of professional life as a writer find out I teach high school, they think um, I'm either joking or they just are really confused. Um, And and at literary events, I have to kind of explain to them that, yeah, I'm actually a high school teacher. Like that's what I do during the day. Um, I, I like the, the oddity and the kind of the novelty of it. Um, it, it is a, a good way to kind of get into talking about education, but um, it, it's, it's a job that's definitely not for, for everyone. Neither is it for most, I would say writers, um, which is probably their, their confu- the source of their confusion. <laughs> so when I say I am, you know, a high school teacher, uh, but it is, yeah, it is, it is my, my, I guess you can call it vocation or life or, or you know, my, my work. It's your day job, right? Yeah, it very much is. And so it must make you a very disciplined writer because, right? I mean, because how yeah. do you find the time? That's really my question. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 you know, I, I've always been a person who's been kind of, I guess, obsessively driven to do the things that I want to do. Um, and, and I guess writing 
uh, it filled the place of, of at some point in my life sports. Um, when I got injured as a basketball player in college, I just started to write and I never looked back from that point. And, uh, yeah, you know, high school teaching, when you do it for long enough, I think you get into a certain rhythm and you understand what makes effective teaching, um, hopefully, and you understand what's in the best interest of the kids. Mm -hmm. And it's not loads of work. It's not endless, um, kind of repetitive uh, rote instruction. It's, it's, it's empathy and it's um, really understanding the kids. And when you get into that rhythm, I think the time in your life opens up a little bit. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've always been someone who's inclined to write at night. Um, in the summer, I do have a little more time uh, mm -hmm. to, to do that during other times of the day. But, you know, mm -hmm. I still have a family and mm -hmm. have twins um, mm -hmm. who, you know, I want to be with them during the day. So it, it is a juggling act. But I would say that high school teaching ended up being an, un, an unlikely but almost perfect match for me. Mm -hmm. I lucked out and was kind of blessed in that marriage of, of things. Yeah. So what inspired you to write this book? What What turned you in that direction? Well, you know, on, on a typical day, you know, for example, today, you know, after we talk, I'll go pick up my daughters at soccer camp and then uh, I'll go for a run in the woods. And hopefully mm -hmm. it doesn't thunderstorm on me as it's supposed to today. But mm -hmm. um, what a run in the woods means for me is, is you know, I go um, down old uh, in New Jersey. There were a lot of abandoned railroads. Um, so in the 1950s or so, they ripped up the railroads and kind of put the the, the ro uh, railroads and the ties and all that stuff on the side and they turned them into to running trails and walking trails mm. so they kind of crisscross northwest new jersey mm -hmm. and when you run in the woods sometimes you're running behind people's houses but a lot of times you're running in, in the past kind of through these long corridors of, of forest with the, the trees kind of as the canopy over you so i spent a lot of time out in the woods and mm -hmm behind our house is a forest and we sort of um, kind of find our way back there a lot uh, going through the creek and we have wildlife cameras set up all over the place so we have coyotes and bobcats and bears and everything you can imagine come through here mm -hmm. so it's not the new jersey that i grew up with nor mm -hmm. is it the new jersey that people think of when they think of new jersey so what i found was that i was continually drawn to that almost paradox of place that, that I'm from a place that people don't associate with the wild, but mm -hmm. I have come to learn that the wild finds us, I guess, whether or not we, we choose to seek it out. Mm -hmm. So for me, when I'm out running or when I'm out behind our house, you know, with my daughters, that tends to be a place that conjures kind of spiritual thoughts for me. And I've always been a, a Catholic and I'm, always going to be a Catholic. You know, that's just who I am. So for me, Catholicism has been very much a, a wild belief system. And I'm, <laughs> you know, I mean that both in like the wilderness set, but also, you know, when I say to you that when, when people find out I'm a high school teacher, they're like, what the hell is that? When they find out that I'm like a Catholic, right? Yeah. They're like, what the hell is that? Like they, that's, you know, it, it's to me, like I said, because I've always been that it's not, surprising but to other people in the, in the secular world and a lot of times also in, in other elements of publishing uh it, it's somewhat of a conundrum um mm -hmm. that you know that 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 is my identity um, right, right. 
so the wild in that way has felt um, it's challenged me, but it's also received me. And it felt like a right, the right time in my life to write a book about that tradition and how it affects me, but how it's affected storytellers over the years. Okay, so let's talk about what you mean by the wild and wilderness um, and how that kind of sets the stage for your book. So the wilderness, I, I take a pretty big view of what that could mean. Um, at points in the book, I do talk about the biblical wilderness. I talk about the idea of the desert as almost a proving ground for faith, as a, a baptismal location. Um, but I also believe that the wilderness, kind of following Wendell Berry, is the edge of a asphalt parking lot that's overgrown with weeds. It's the small strip of forest that separates two people's um, homes. Mm -hmm. um, the wilderness, and I think this is one of my main kind of points in the book is that the wilderness, if it's only a place that we kind of pack up the car and travel to maybe two times a year, uh, it's separate from us. We don't work to conserve it. We don't see it as a spiritual, a place of almost generative kind of spirituality. Uh, we have to recognize that the wilderness is, is, it was here before us. It's going to be here when we're gone. Um, mm. It's it's a great place for us to understand God. And the people that I talk about in the book, um, I start off um, with John the Baptist, talk about Jesus. I talk about the Desert Fathers, specifically uh, St. Anthony. But then I go into more contemporary writers, uh, people like Jim Harrison, Thomas McGuane, um, W.S. Merwin, Mary Oliver, all the way on to Toni Morrison, people who I feel have been influenced by the wilderness in different ways. And I was hoping that people would see, um, you know, even though I'm approaching this as a, as a Catholic writer, not all the people in the book are Catholic. Um, I would mm -hmm. say it probably leans in the direction of Catholicism, but it's, it's broader than that. It's looking at how the wilderness has created spirituality in many different faith traditions. Right. Well, and there's also kind of a secular analog. So this is something that, um, you know, in my academic research, I do a lot of work on self-transcendence. And I've done a lot of work with social scientists, uh, especially psychologists who are working on this concept. And all of the social scientific literature on awe and like what they call epiphatic like experiences where they talk about oceanic feelings and a sense of oneness with everything. Basically being out in the wild is the second best way to get this. The first way is to pray. <laughs> if you don't, right. If you don't do that, then just going out into what John Muir called, what did he call them? Nat natural cathedrals. You know, you have this sense of an overwhelming feeling of, of awe yeah. in the face of not just nature, but a nature that is in a very important and deep ways untouched by the will of man, yeah. right? So it's not nature that's been corralled or controlled or manipulated um, in ways that are useful to us. It's kind of like useless nature. Mm -hmm. It's just there. It's itself in a way. 
And if it's expressive of a will, it's not ours, <laughs> right? Yeah. Maybe it's not expressive of a will at all, but it's right. just something that is completely separate from us. Also, people describe these experiences that they have out in the wilderness as um, experiences of tremendous beauty. And it has this kind of quasi religious character to it, you know? So even the completely secular empirical literature on this tends to reach for words like the sacred, mm -hmm. you know? And so I've always found that just incredibly interesting. There's also a lot of work that's trying to show or purports to show, again, from an empirical standpoint, that there is some kind of salutary moral, spiritual effect of these experiences. Now they don't necessarily last. Right? Mm -hmm. So they don't, <laughs> right. they don't translate into, because of course you leave. Yeah. Right. And your oceanic feelings mm -hmm. don't last, you know? Yeah. Um, so, so I think there's something, yeah, I think, I think that there's something to this that even completely secular people and completely secular methodologies are kind of attuned to. I love that you brought that up. And I like that phrase that you use, like the idea of the useless wilderness, because I think a lot of times we conceive of the natural world through the egoistic kind of human view. Uh, what can it do for us? You know, I'm saying this as I'm hearing lawns being mowed in the distance and like you kind of you understand the upkeep that is necessary almost mm -hmm. to 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 have a home or to have a space but at the same time the um the, the egotistical inclination to control the libido dominandi right, right so the yeah i mean if you and you bring up as you say like the people who for whom religion is not their methodological or, or their interest you know it is they still lean in that direction when they talk about the natural world. And I think, I think father, um, I think it was father Thomas Berry who, who was, uh, who was writing about this and saying that the, the, the conservation movement needs God, um, to truly be a steward movement. Um, if it's, if it's agnostic, if it's atheistic, it, it, it doesn't go all the way that it should go in terms of this, the sacral elements. And so I'm actually happy to hear, as you're saying, that they're, they're, they're empirically are leaning in that direction. Um, I, I think it, a lot of the people that I've encountered who have been um, environmentally inclined, we could say, have also had that open mind in nature about God. Mm -hmm. And it's it's without it, it it feels empty it feels um inauthentic and and what you talk when when you talk about these idea of these moments of awe um you know i am the least one of the least sentimental people that i know i mean i'm an italian person from new jersey so like this is you know you've got like the skeptic of all skeptics here and i'm saying that when i go out in the wild you know that's the place that changes me and, you know, it's either the wild or it's at mass. Those are the two places that I'm sentimental. Mm -hmm. And to have them come together in the woods, it, it feels like there's something happening there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, 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 that's what I sort of want to, to look at in, in the book. Yeah. So you say at the end of 
I can't remember if it's your preface or your introduction, but somewhere you say that we need the tonic of wilderness. What do you mean by that? I think we need to be jarred out of um, a sense of complacency, a sense of the, the typical. And, you know, I go back to Wendell Berry because Wendell Berry was careful to laud the domestic as much as he, he held up the wild. You know, he didn't want to mm-hmm. say that domestic life is, is um, or the ordinary or the prosaic is not interesting. But, but there is a necessity, I think, to be kind of jarred out of that comfort that we have. And, you know, when I go back to um, online existence of which, you know, we've had an increasing amount perhaps in the past year and a half, but still it was something that was with us before. And, and I think of the almost literal um, tunnel vision of being online and that, mm-hmm. that feeling of, of the constant cycling of information and being part of that circuit sort of world. When I see a bear out, and, and that happens to me, happens to us all the time. It happened to us three days ago outside. You know, I was outside with my daughters and the bear just walks up. Like that shocks us that we are we are not the most important thing in, in the universe. There are mm-hmm. other things beyond us that we don't understand that are grander than us. And it's that little fissure, I guess, in the complacency that awakens us. So the, the tonic of the wild um, is the idea that we need to go out there. We need to experience that world. We need to understand that the world that we need to, that we live every day is comfortable. Perhaps it's what we mm-hmm. create the structure, but it's not the full world. Mm-hmm. And as storytellers throughout, you know, the, the, the Christian tradition, but even beyond the Christian Christian tradition, have seen, is that the wilderness shakes us a little bit, mm-hmm. and, and it's good to feel that. I think. Yeah. Well, it's also I don't know if you I'm not sure if you want to pick up this thread or not, but. The wilderness is also terrifying, mm-hmm. right? So I, I'm scared of bears. I don't know about you. Um, I don't really want a pet bear. Um, but so when, so, you know, I was raised um, in a totally secular, you know, borderline mm-hmm. atheist household. Mm-hmm. And, but my parents were also kind of like hippies, you know, and mm-hmm. all of our vacations we're going to national parks or state parks. Like that's what we did. We just got out there. My parents like made me hike the Grand Canyon when I was seven. <laughs> just like do it, you know. And you're like, I think I might die. They're like, no, it's fun. Um, and so you know, we would be out in Glacier or Yellowstone, and my parents and I've you know like I've seen my dad get chased by bison. And I'm like, oh, it seems bad. <laughs> but you, I mean, it's it's also kind of terrifying because you realize like one false step here and I'm a goner, right? Um, I mean, that's just a sheer cliff, yeah. right? A, less than a foot away from me. There's no guardrail. And my parents were very, um, you know, I'm, I'm just like very Gen X and they were still of that generation where they were like, yeah, you know, you might, you might die. <laughs> and I'm not going to try to protect you from that. And I think actually that was good. It was terrifying to me at the time. 
but I think it was good, right? Mm. Because it did, you know, they didn't have to teach me that it was, it was like implicitly this giant memento mori, Mm -hmm. you know, like you're a fragile thing. Yeah. This grizzly bear, if it comes, it'll probably eat you. So Mm. here's what you got to do to try to Mm. save that off. Yeah. We're out in grizzly territory. Um, cause we, cause we think it's cool. Right. I just wonder if you, <laughs> I mean, I think a lot of people now would think that's bad parenting one. I mean, I've had people call the cops on me cause I let my kids walk oh. to school by themselves. Oh, <laughs> um, there's this kind of hyper, there's this idea that what good parenting is, is sheltering your kids, mm-hmm. right? whether it's sheltering them from beliefs that you don't hold or just sheltering them from any kind of physical harm. Right. And I didn't grow, I didn't grow up in that cultural space. You know, all of the playgrounds were still incredibly dangerous Mm -hmm. and we got hurt all the time. (laughs) Right. 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 But yeah, I just wonder if you, I mean, is there a part of like the danger aspect that you're interested in as having any kind of spiritual Absolutely. I, I, I think the fact that that has stayed with you for so long um, speaks to its power as, as a story, I guess. It was an experience, but it was a narrative, right? It was a story. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. it, it, you're able to, to recall it. And as you say, it, was, it had some formative element for you. And I think, I mean, whenever I go run, I'm scared. And I'm not scared to the point that I stop running, mm-hmm. but I know that something could cross my path mm-hmm. and then I'll see I keep going. And, and mm-hmm. I think, you know, when, when Gustav Flaubert, who, who was certainly not known as a religious person, when, when he was drawn uh, to St. Anthony and the life mm-hmm. and the legend, you know, of St. Anthony, and he became obsessed with, you know, that was, that was Flaubert's real, true life work was the temptation of St. Anthony, his, his book that he worked on for many, many years. And he'd be walking around in, in kind of a reverie thinking about, you know, not the, 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 the forest wilderness that we're talking about, but the desert wilderness. What drew him to that was the incredible fear of that narrative. The temptation of St. Anthony in, in many ways is this extreme horror play in, in, in novel form. And I mean, I am, I mean, we watched The Exorcist when we were way too young for other people, but I mean, in an Italian mm-hmm. house, like The Exorcist, I mean, this is sort of like mm-hmm. rite of passage. And and to me, fear and, and religion can coexist. And I don't need to figure everything out. And I would be a little bit scared if I did. And I don't understand everything about the wild, which is part of why we call it the wild. When we refer to things as wild, they are, they are unkempt, they are natural, they are faster than us, stronger than us, they're beyond us. And I agree with you that that, that part, that element of fear can cultivate an awe, which could lead to belief, which could mm-hmm. lead to faith, because what do we do with that? That, mm-hmm. that weird feeling of not knowing it has mm-hmm. to go somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, you know, as you say, you're correct that, that people don't want to feel uncomfortable mm-hmm. in that way. Now, yeah. 
Yeah, and I think that there's a real connection with humility. You know, when you have these experiences and you realize, one, that everything's not about you, right? Like, this has been here before you. This is going to be here way after you're gone. And also, like, that this could, you, you know, I mean, this could kill you. And I think there is a kind of, it's kind of forced humility, really. And I think that's good for people. You know, I think humility is good. And I mean, for, you know, for my parents, our vacations, they were, they were a kind of, they were a kind of education. Like that's what my parents thought that was their, that was their catechesis for me, you know, like, and what I came to see much later in life, somewhat to my parents' dismay, is that there is a suppressed premise there, right? Huh. Namely, that nature is good, but it's good, but it's beautiful. And well, then I thought about, okay, well, how can that be, right? You know, and then I just became a papist. <laughs> and that was not... That was not the direction that education was meant to go in. <laughs> right, right. At right. all. Yeah. <laughs> but I think, yeah, it really did. Um, yeah, it, it definitely shaped my mind and my heart in in pretty profound ways. Yeah. Um, but any education does. Right. And it, um, sounds like, it sounds like there was a natural overlap once, once you came to that place kind of religiously, that, that there was a like you say, the, the natural world made sense, perhaps, or maybe inevitably was what it should have been all the all for you know for, for for you for your life. Yeah, well, and I also think it taught me contemplation mm-hmm. without giving a name for it, mm-hmm. right? Because like you're out there in a tent. <laughs> I mean, there were no iPhones then, right? Um, you're just out there and you, you know, you've got like a compass <laughs> right? <laughs> and, um, and of course I was a bookworm, so I always brought my books, but still you're just, you're just contemplating nature. You don't mm-hmm. know that it's contemplation. Nobody gives you a framework for really thinking about it, but that's what you're doing. Yeah. And, and that obviously stuck with me mm-hmm. as well. So I want to turn now to chapter two of your book. Mm-hmm which is called Wild Creativity and is a chapter on Gerard Manley Hopkins, um, the great English Jesuit poet. Um, So who was Hopkins and why was Hopkins so important to English poetry? Mm -hmm. Gerard Manley Hopkins, as you note, was a a Jesuit priest. Um, He was raised Anglican and much to his his mom's dismay, uh, caught wind of the uh, uh, of the tradition of, of Catholic conversion that was happening at Oxford, um, which included uh, John Henry Newman. And when he converted, uh, it was it was the end of a of, of a process that had been happening to him for for some years, and we can kind of trace that evolution uh, in his journals. He, he did keep rather copious notebooks and journals drawings, and observations about nature, but also spiritual contemplation. Um, so when Hopkins converted, uh, things started to make sense for him. And he rather leaned very 
strongly into his his faith and uh, ultimately became a Jesuit priest, was ordained, uh, and then and continued that uh, till his death. Hopkins is, to me, one of the most radical and important poets uh, in the English language. And he has led to, I would say, a, a, a seismic shift in prosody, in syntax, in the way people as writers kind of uh, express themselves. So I was introduced to Hopkins when I was an undergraduate. Um, so I was at a Lutheran college, Susquehanna University in Pennsylvania, and I was being taught the writing of poetry by an agnostic professor. And um, she was the person who introduced me to Hopkins. So me, the Catholic, had no idea who Hopkins was when I was, you know, a sophomore in college. Mm -hmm. But we read uh, the Windhover in class. Mm -hmm. And here was someone who didn't believe in God, who talked about this as it was a holy text, and that mm -hmm. he was uh, the, the preeminent English poet. Hopkins is jarring. He is strange, and I mean that in the best possible way, because, you know, as we kind of alluded to before, Catholicism is strange because it's radical. You know, the mm -hmm. idea of Christ is radical, especially mm -hmm. in a secular world. So Hopkins, as a writer, sounded out of place. He sounded um, unusual. And so you have this guy who's just a, a very skilled writer. And at the same time, whose faith and whose sense of God is at the center of his poetry and who says the name of Christ, who speaks of the Holy Ghost in his lines. So it's not someone for whom religion is a kind of distant influence. It's front and center in his work. Mm -hmm. And after him... Um, I think there then became this kind of template for what a religious poet could be because Hopkins embraced that idea, even though during his lifetime, really his work wasn't published. It wasn't really until he died and his friend, Robert Bridges, who was at one point poet laureate of England, um, collected his work and, and released it to the world. So what really is so different about his poetry compared to what came before it? Because presumably it wouldn't just be that he talks about God, plenty of religious poetry before Hopkins. I mean, is it something about his style? Um, something about what he's doing with meter or? Hopkins had an, an extreme level of compression to his lines. Um, he packs mm -hmm. a lot of information, a lot of uh, juxtaposed imagery at, 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 it's almost like he um, it's like it's like a it's like a kind of paper balled up and then like when you you know it's, it's like he's like strengthening it and he's like tightening it and uh, if you were to let it loose like it would kind of explode like he has a sense of compression that other poets didn't have um, in, in his poetry what what Hopkins would do is that you know, the Windhover is one example. That was the one, like I said, that, that sort of introduced me to him. Um, Hopkins would have kind of a, an animating image. Um, a Windhover is 
a wind hover, like a, a falcon that's kind of flying in the air, but it almost looks like they're they're stuck um, when they're kind of riding the wind. And he would start with that image. And as a Jesuit, especially, he believed that God was in all things. So if you believe that God is in all things, God is in that falcon that's in the air above you. God is in the wind that is pushing against the falcon. God is in your perception of that falcon. So he would have that kind of extreme layering. And the question is, well, how do you show that in a poem? Now, you don't say, well, literally, God is in me. God is in the falcon. Like that doesn't work in, in art, right, to be that literal. So you have to ask yourself, well, how do you compress that into syntax? And that's the extreme compression um, that results in his work, which is why for some people, when they're introduced to Hopkins, he's tough to understand. Um, and, you know, if you look at sort of his work, I mean, I guess I could speak to, to a one specifically God's grandeur. Um, yeah, vision. let's do it. Yeah, the... Um, the copy that I'm looking at now is my literal college copy. So the, the pages are falling out, um, which is, I guess, a sign of a good book. But God's grandeur, yeah. um, I'll read a few lines from this. Uh, the world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. It gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil crushed. Why do men then not now not wreck his rod? Generations have trod, have trod, have trod, and all is seared with trade, bleared, smeared with toil, and wears man's smudge and shares man's smell. The soil is bare now, nor can foot feel being shod. And for all this, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest freshness, deep down things. And though the last lights off the black west went, O oh morning, as the brown brink eastward springs, because the Holy Ghost over the bent world broods with warm breast and with, ah, bright wings. So if you're looking at that poem on the page, you see a large amount of punctuation. There are commas, there are semicolons, there's dashes. Hopkins believed that his work should be read aloud, that it should be heard. He said that in many of his letters to, to Robert Bridges. Um, in that poem, when I talk about kind of the layering that he's doing, he starts with this kind of, pronouncement line, the world is charged with the grandeur of God, which is one of those kind of abstract statements that, you know, like you allude to, yeah, there's religious poets before him that have tried to, to show that. But the way that Hopkins shows it in his lines is through that juxtaposition, through that sense of sound, through almost the, the dirt, I guess, in, in, in the world that he looks at to show us that even though we're kind of wearing down the world, the world transcends us. God transcends us in, in many ways. And as you say before, it'll be there beyond we expire, beyond when we die. Do you think it's challenging to read his poems aloud in the proper way, where like you're putting the proper stress on things and you're starting and stopping at the right spot? 
I think punctuation is always going to be our, our best guide to, to reading a poem. Um, I do think because of his tendency toward idiosyncrasy in his, in his language, in his, in his punning, in his usage or creation, kind of out of whole cloth, new words from time to time as he did in the Windhover, it could be challenging to find the right places to, to stress. You know, a lot of Hopkins, um, a lot of his pieces were sonnets. So there's a natural question and answer, introduction, response, rhythm to those texts. And sometimes that's the best way to approach Hopkins is he kind of offers us situation and then explanation or possibility and then result. Mm -hmm. So what does um, you say? I mean, you, you argue in his, in your book that his poetic gifts come from his vision of wilderness. So what is his vision of wilderness and, and how does that kind of play out in his poems? Yeah, Hopkins was always uh, attracted to the natural world um, when he would go on walks, either by himself or with friends. Uh, he would go back and write about those walks, the, the birds, the trees, the plants, um, the things that he saw. But as an artist, uh, he had, he had a, an artistic theory that is, once again, idiosyncratic. It's not a critical theory at all. So the ideas of inscape and in stress, um, I would always tell students and people that I wouldn't approach them as like a critical methodology because Hopkins really wasn't a critic. He was an artist mm -hmm. and an artist needs to find a method for them to create things, not for thing, them to assess things. So for Hopkins, the idea of inscape is kind of a concept of almost proportion, that everything in this world has unique and particular elements, a certain proportion to it. And he believed in a certain uh, existence of patterns in, in nature. I mean, if you cut mm -hmm. a tree, you'll see the pattern, of course. Um, mm -hmm. So Hopkins, he had this one great line in his journal where he, he says, if you look hard enough at something, it seems to look hard at you. And, you know, it, it, it's an interesting line because it, it almost implies that the natural world sees us. And I think that to me is at the heart of Hopkins' sense of the wilderness. You know, there was a, a, a tree that was cut down near where Hopkins was once and he wept over it. And this idea that, that he could be so hurt by the hurt world meant that he believed everything was a God-created gift. So if you think, you know, if someone is, I always kind of tell this, you know, to people when I talk about religion and writing, you know, if we, if we, if, if people claim to be believers and, you know, someone like myself who believes in these things, we sometimes have to follow them to their logical ends, right? And if the logical, if the belief is that God created all things and God created nature, and God created the bear, but also the, the, the water, and God created the desert, and so on. If we believe that, then those are beautiful things. Those are things worth saving, worth respecting. But there are also things that affect us in, in ways that maybe are comforting, maybe are not. But for Hopkins, in, in this poem, God's Grandeur, uh, when, when he says, despite our 
smearing with toil our smudge. Nature is never spent. That mm -hmm. it will be beyond us because it was made not for us. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the difficult pill to swallow sometimes with wilderness literature is that a lot of people like nature when they can control it or they can mm -hmm. deal with it in a way that is comforting to them. And Hopkins mm -hmm. tells us that sometimes we have to be uncomfortable. Yeah. What was his experience in the wild? I mean, is he like out there, I don't know, wrestling with bears or something? <laughs> with, I mean, yeah. you know, he's at Oxford for a long time. It's not exactly the wilderness. Exactly. Right. It's quite lovely. Maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe it's wilderness. spiritual wilderness. But yeah, I mean, he certainly wrote about a spiritual wilderness. He was very uh, drawn to uh, Christ's temptation in the wilderness and the idea of being spiritually tested. Uh, so he used that metaphorical wilderness much. Um, a lot of his time out in the wild, uh, he did some traveling uh, at some points in his life uh, as part of the Jesuit order, but a lot of his time in the wild was in spaces where he could see, uh, you know, there's one poem that, that I love in Verse Made, uh, where he's writing about seeing the water and uh, it's he describes it, uh, this darksome burn, horseback brown, his roll rock high road roaring down in coopin and comb, the fleece of his foam, flutes and low to the lake falls home. He's describing both a horse and the water that appears like the horse. So for Hopkins, there was an, uh, a connectivity to the wild that even if he was in a space that wasn't the preternatural or kind of stereotypical wilderness, it was all connected for him, um, mm -hmm. which is, a, I think, a Catholic belief, you know, in, in many ways. Um, so we wouldn't consider Hopkins a, a John Muir kind of individual, you know, somebody who's out there mm -hmm. for months, but we mm -hmm. do see him as somebody who was able to draw those metaphors out of the wild he was able to encounter. Mm -hmm. Well, I do think Americans have their own culturally specific understanding of the wilderness, which is just baked into how we came to be and kind of manifest destiny and, this, you know, the whole idea of going west and going out into the wild. But it was all sort of tinged with conquering it. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, that was, that was sort of like the whole idea of the, the you know, there's a, there's a kind of masculinity mm -hmm. tied up with all of that. Oh, yeah. Maybe it's not uniquely American, but it's definitely like a recognizably American thing. And then there's also just the fact that in America, for a variety of reasons, you know, we just, we have wilderness, right. That we, that we specifically were like, we're going to, basically put a fence around this yeah. and we're going to, we're going to conserve it. Right. Yeah. And of course, John Muir and Teddy Roosevelt were a huge part of mm -hmm. that. It's sort of amazing that that happened. It's like yeah. a real, it's a miracle actually. It is. Um, <laughs> that, that someone was basically like, not everything can be for human use. Right. That any American president ever just bought right. into that. Right. is still amazing to me. And I'm, I'm like, we'll always have to fight for it. We'll always be yeah. 
under threat. So let's, we're almost out of time. Maybe let's go through one or two of Hopkins' poems just to get a sense of how this is playing out. I mean, so we did God's grandeur and then, what is it? Aversnade? How do you say yes, that? Inversnade. Yeah. Inversnade. Is there another one you want to I talk really about? I really love um, Pied Beauty. Oh yeah, that's a great one. Which reminds me, by the way, is there a um, is there an edition of of Hopkins that you recommend for our listeners? I I mean I have always used the gar- the old school Gardner one. Um, I don't know if the Gardner has been repackaged in recent years. Mm. Um, the W H Gardner uh, Penguin edition. Um, I've always used that one, but uh, I think when when Paul Mariani has done his biographies of Hopkins that he's used possibly a different one, but I'm not sure of the exact title of the other one. Mm-hmm. The one I just have is Oxford World's Classics. Got it. Okay. Very cheap. Probably the Penguin <laughs> is cheap too. I mean, look, it's all, it's in English. It's not like it's in translation. Exactly. So in some sense you can't go wrong. Exactly. Okay. So Pied Beauty, mm-hmm. take it away. Glory be to God for dappled things, for skies of couple color as a brinded cow, for rose moles all in stipple, upon trout that swim, fresh fire coal chestnut foals, finches wings, landscape plotted and pieced, fold, fallow, and plow in all trades, their gear and tackle and trim. All things counter original, spare, strange, whatever is fickle, freckled, who knows how, with swift, slow, sweet, sour, a dazzle dim, he fathers forth whose beauty is past change, praise him. So I love this from start to finish. I love that he ends the poem, praise him. I love that he has a parenthetical note in the poem, who knows how, which is kind of at the core of faith, right? Like, I mean, talk about humility, you know, faith is an act of humility. Like we're kind of saying like, I think it's true, but I don't really know. Like, I mean, that's, that's what powers Hopkins in the poem. He once again starts with that pronouncement kind of opening line, right? Like God's grandeur. He says, glory be to God for dappled things. So one of our dogs is a dappled dachshund, you know, it has those marks. It kind of looks unusual Hopkins is saying to us, in this world, we have things that are different. We have things that are odd. We have things that are uncomfortable, perhaps, to us. Those are God's creations. And, you know, when I talked about kind of that sonnet style of presentation and then response, in the first half of this sonnet, he's ta- he's kind of listing all these different things, the, the cow, the, the trout. Um, when you look, you know, he always has his bird's eyed view of in, in, in England, um, the landscape and these little plots. He's saying these beautiful things have spots, right? And in the second half of the sonnet, um, you know, he even uses that word strange. Hopkins embraced that oddity in existence and thought that that's where God was. Um, I think it's it's a beautiful piece. And I think one thing that's great about Hopkins is that he's a kind of poet who could be a spiritual kind of guide or companion for people. Um, you know, if you don't know what to pray about or how to pray, read Pie and Beauty and contemplate it, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's like a, a spiritual guide that an artist can give us. And I think what makes one of the reasons why Hopkins is such a great writer. Mm-hmm. 
mean, it's so interesting. So I agree. It's interesting to me, though, that you say that Hopkins is tough for people. There are some poets that I find really tough, but I can't say that Hopkins is one of them. I mean, it, to me, it's just very beautiful. And I don't know whatever's holding people back. I mean, I don't find him. One, his poems are short for mm. the most part. So it's not like some big, <laughs> it's not like Dante, yeah. who I think is, is legit hard, but, right. you know, totally worth it. You know, I feel like Hopkins is just something that can be on your nightstand mm -hmm. and, you know, just pick it up in the morning or in the evening before bed and just appreciate it. And yeah, definitely read it out loud. But I would say that for all poetry. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, all poetry that's not in translation, I guess, right. because you have to hear it, you know, because it's it is kind of like a song. Mm -hmm. you, you wouldn't. Nobody thinks you can appreciate a song by just looking at the lyrics. Right. I mean, most of the time you look at you, right. <laughs> like you would not. Exactly. So you have to like really have to speak it mm -hmm. because just the the sounds. Um, the way that the sounds play off one another, it's so important. And it's so stunning in his poetry mm -hmm. in particular, the way that, um, I'm sorry, because I don't have the technical jargon, mm -hmm. but just, I'll just speak in, in my untutored philosophy sort of way. Yeah. It just, you know, the way that the, the consonants and the vowels and the, I mean, it just sort of spills off your tongue. It's marvelous. Yeah. So I think people should definitely not be put off right. by Hopkins. Like, I, I actually don't think he's that hard. Maybe if I were more sophisticated, I, I would understand why this is so difficult. But I'm not. Like, I'm not trained in poetry. Well, you know, I think there, you I think you, you have an openness to God in a text, which I think helps, right? Yeah. Like if, you know, if, if you read a poem, and, and I think that's the, the, perhaps one of the paradoxes of Hopkins is that people who love Hopkins tend to be people who are um, skilled agnostic poets who just love great prosody and, and syntax mm -hmm. and people who see God in all things. That's mm -hmm. a pretty big, I mean, any writer would be lucky to have that right. wide of a swath of an audience. And that's right. That's what allows Hopkins to transcend. And, right. and I would, yeah, I would, I would echo what you say. If you're someone who, you know, if someone has never really studied poetry before, read Spring and Fall by Gerard Manley Hopkins. Um, I probably, really love that one. Yeah, you'd probably be really sad at the end. But, you know, it's, it's a beautiful piece and it's, it, it can be approached by, I think, any reader. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you teach Hopkins? I do. Yeah. What are your high school... You know, I, I am, my high school is like a, a mini Catholic education <laughs> public school. I teach, you know, I teach Hopkins. I teach oh. the little Thomas <laughs> <Don't>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's, you know. It, Don't get in I, trouble, I, Nick. <laughs> no, it's, it's all good. <laughs> you know, I, uh, I, I teach Hopkins to my AP language students um, mm -hmm. because he is, if you can navigate his lines, you can get through anything, mm -hmm. um, you know. So I, I teach them two RB, which was one of his, I think, perhaps his last poem. I think that was his last poem. Yeah. That was his friend Robert Bridges. Correct. Did I get that right? 
Yeah. Yeah. Hopkins who was it? Who there. was? Who was an atheist? This was like his poet friend. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Hopkins says, you know, I write, I write to convert you. Um, and he literally kind of meant, you know, to nudge. Yeah, but it, it didn't work though, no, did it? not at all. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> we, we all need foils like that, I think. Like, yeah. 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 So what about this poem to RB? To RB, uh, I mean, it's, it's interesting because it's a poem where he kind of uh, apologizes for his lack of creative output but does so in this incredibly masterful poem. So ironically, mm -hmm. he's you know, creating his poem. But he, he, he creates this sense that, um, you know, he plays upon metaphors of pregnancy and gestation, this idea of, of an idea, nine years, he says, you know, in, in, the, in the body, like this concept of um, we have to sit with something for a long time. But with Hopkins, there's the idea that you know, if we believe in God, and Hopkins certainly did, even if you know his life wasn't perfect and life wasn't easy for him and he suffered in his existence, um, he believed that there was something greater than him. And if you can write towards that as mm -hmm. an artist, that's huge. And, and and you know that's I think why so many wonderful artists have been, you know, they've been religious. And when I say religious, piety is tough. But but that's not really what religion is about. Religion is about the trying and the belief, right? And and Hopkins had that in full. Yeah, it's the struggle, perseverance yep. to the yep. end. Well, why don't we why don't we end things on his last poem? Do you mind reading it? Of course. Okay, so his last poem was titled Two R B. The fine delight that fathers thought, the strong spur live and lancing like the blowpipe flame, breathes once, and quenched faster than it came, leaves yet the mind a mother of immortal song. Nine months she then, nay years, nine years she long within her wares, bears cares and combs the same, the widow of an insight lost, she lives with aim now known and hand at work now never wrong. Sweet fire, the sire of muse, my soul needs this. I want the one rapture of an inspiration. Oh, then, if in my lagging lines you miss the roll, the rise, the carol, the creation, my winter world that scarcely breathes that bliss, now yields you, with some size, our explanation. I think he went out with a bang, frankly. Yeah. That's a wonderful poem. Thank you so much, Nick, for joining us. This was really fun. Thank you for having me. It was great. You have been listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a philosophy and theology podcast that is generously underwritten by the Institute of Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America and produced by Catholics for Hire, a group of young Catholic digital content freelancers. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Just go to www.patreon.com slash eudaimoniapod to become a monthly patron. And I'd like to thank our most recent patrons for their support of the podcast. So thanks go to Jeffrey Dargis, Joseph Trout, 
George Sankari, John Arnold, Mary Finnegan, Steve Lothis, Abby Rogers, John Butcher, Sean McJillernath, and Lawrence Bausch. For our next episode, I'll be joined by Michael Farmer to discuss the philosophy of Gabriel Marcel and his play Thirst. Until then, friends, be well and keep reading. Thank you.